Welcome to Conversation 360 podcast in this second series of Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. As with our first series, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, and you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. It's interesting to see how China is going to cope with somebody who's probably just as fluid as they would like to be, Donald Trump. Um, I think that that is going to be uh, like a, a several dozen PhD topics is pro- probably being set up as we speak in Beidou University around him, how he came to power and how he's going to wield it. That's Angela McKay, the Financial Times Managing Director of Asia Pacific and global publisher of FT Live. When she mentions Donald Trump being fluid, she's referring to the trend of China towards a less fluid, less Confucian nation, and the irony of Chinese now figuring out what to make of Mr. Trump as President of the United States. Angela is a sophisticated yet easygoing Australian who wears her leadership role comfortably. She dresses in a hip style, and she carries on a conversation with great wit and a long-term view cultivated over her years spent in a global business. She maintains a home in Australia and has places in London and Hong Kong as well, and she spends time in New York City. She's the kind of busy executive who's able to make you feel as if despite all the demands on her time, she's delighted to be talking with you, and she's focused, engaged, delightful, and wicked smart. Our conversation took place early one morning in the FT's boardroom in Hong Kong. She talked of the recent surge in China's confidence and its military might. There was a little bit more bellicose talk as well, particularly out of China. We saw China finally emerge with its first um, aircraft carrier. And when you've got the biggest army in the world, it's funny that you don't end up with an aircraft carrier to be able to get them around the Pacific. So you're starting to see uh, China assert itself in, uh, militarily in a way that is obvious to an international audience. Angela mentions the subtle shift of attention at conferences and global gatherings, away from what do the Western leaders say about this or that, to what is the view of the Asians? I wasn't at APEC this year. But uh, friends of mine who were journalists and also speakers were, and they said there was a real, uh, there was a real shift in focus and emphasis and who were the people that, that had the longest interview lists, uh, the people who uh, were commanding most um, airtime on and off the stage. And they were? They were from this region. Mm-hmm. They were coming from East Asia. She also talks about how impressive China's millennials are in terms of their STEM achievements and unbridled ambition. We had eight interns in 2016 over the summer in our Beijing office. Every single one of them frightened the bejesus out of me because they were wonderfully educated, um, sophisticated in their worldview, they'd travelled, they were making up ideas while they were working for the FT. They were impressive. We cover these topics plus robotics, China's relationship with North Korea, global terrorism, and why it's safer in Hong Kong than in the West, and many more. So let's get started. Welcome to Conversation 360 and this series, Asia and the West, Angela. It's so much fun to talk to you again. So welcome. Thank you very much, Susan. It's great to see you back on our shores. Well, thank you. And 
When did you come to Asia? I know you've been here for eons, mm. but when did you get here from Australia? Well, you could almost say, no, that, that's um, as a very interesting um, semantic argument in many ways. <laughs> Is Australia part of Asia? Um, I suppose it's a little bit like the lace on somebody's petticoat. It's just sort of down the end of the... <laughs> Down the end of the uh, the garment, but uh, I was born in Australia, yes, in Sydney, and then I um, I expelled myself to to London, and I came here to Hong Kong 21 years ago from London. I was working there as a foreign correspondent for an Australian newspaper at that stage, and then came here in uh, 1995, and that was very exciting for myself and my husband because we were both journalists, and uh, this was going to be a big story the 1997 handover yes. back to China. Indeed. So you've really been here for enough time to really see the shift in all the things that are happening between mm. Asia and the West, specifically mm. China is the thing that, that mm. we're especially interested in. So when I say we're talking about the conversations that take place in and between Asia and the West, but specifically China, what does that bring to mind for you? What does that mean, the conversations going on between Asia and the West? Well, the conversations have changed um, dramatically because I don't think there's uh, as much apologizing, as much uh, modesty about the way Asia is portraying itself. I think even even the, the Asian pearls were quite surprised uh, during the late 90s when it was talking about all these tiger economies and how it was going to be their century, the 21st century. And then, of course, we had the Asian financial crisis and that doused that fire pretty comprehensively for a while. Mm. But then um, we got to the global financial crisis um, in 2008, 2009, and then suddenly that was a great leveller. And uh, it meant that a lot of Asian economies had a chance to catch up again with the West, which was floundering around, um, some would say uh, philosophically as well as financially, uh, following the global financial crisis. So true. So I noticed that there was an increase in confidence. There was an increase in, um, I think, there was a little bit more bellicose talk as well, particularly out of China. We saw China finally emerge with its first... Um, aircraft carrier and when you've got the biggest army in the world it's funny that you don't end up with an aircraft carrier to be able to get them around the Pacific so you're starting to see uh, China assert itself in uh, militarily in a way that is obvious to an international audience uh, so I think that has been another thing that I've noticed particularly and of course you've got all the um, the conflict and arguments about the um, disputed land masses natural and man-made in the South China Sea. Um, and also you're seeing China and uh, to, also Japan starting to figure out that they have to position themselves on a global stage, um, carve out a niche that is a solid niche, not something that's quite so um, Confucian, not quite so uh, fluid. And uh, it's interesting to see Abe in Hawaii this week mm -hmm. um, at Pearl Harbor. It's interesting to see how China is going to cope with somebody who's probably just as fluid as they would like to be, Donald Trump, 
um, I think that that is going to be uh, like a, a several dozen PhD topics is pro probably being set up as we speak in Beidar University around him, how he came to power and how he's going to wield it. So those, those kind of conversations are new uh, and are going to change a lot of the rules of engagement between um, China and the East and the West. And I think that there is a sense in, I've certainly felt it here, particularly in China, and also traveling through, even traveling through Indochina, um, Vietnam in particular, you feel it's a little bit of an end of an empire sense on the other side of the Pacific. Uh, I wasn't at APEC this year, but uh, friends of mine who were journalists and also speakers were, and they said there was a real, uh, there was a real shift in focus and emphasis and who were the people that, that had the longest interview lists, uh, the people who uh, were commanding most um, airtime on and off the stage. And they were? They were from this region. Mm. They were coming from East Asia. So there is a sense that um, maybe this century is going to be the Asian century. It's just started a little bit late. So how does this recent slowdown in China, what impact does that have? How does that fit into all of this? Well, it's a slowdown. It's a slowdown you have when you're not really having a slowdown is how I think about <laughs> it. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, for example, if you, if you just move back to, to Japan for a second, Japan had zero, even negative growth for years and years and years and still does. True. But... I don't see their lives being particularly impacted. I mean, if that's the new normal, is that such a bad thing? Uh, of course, that doesn't have uh, Japan doesn't have the same kind of political um, balancing act that uh, China has. But for China, um, obviously, a certain amount of economic growth, um, and I don't know what the magic number is, but I assume it's probably between seven and ten percent is required to keep the wheels on the bus because you have the, the rich and poor divide, the rural, the urban um, divide, and you need to be able to keep enough people in jobs to ensure that there is um, political harmony, at least on the surface. So that's a very important, the most important equation, I think, in China, and it has been for the last decade, I'm sure. Harmony is an interesting word that you use because that's the one they use, isn't yeah, it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that there will be infrastructure spending. They will just invest in infrastructure. They've done it before and that will mean keep lots of public works, lots of, lots more highways, lots more airports, um, bridges, etc. to make sure that there is sufficient employment, particularly in rural areas, to keep, to keep um, the engine of growth puttering along. I think that what's going to be interesting in China, which was the workshop of the West, is what happens when we find um, what, what, uh, what increasing mechanization is going to do to those big factories like Foxconn. I mean, you think about how much their workforce is going to decline simply because of robots. Um, more artificial intelligence being used in construction of 
all of Apple's products or whoever's products they're making in those in those factories. So on one hand, you, you, you got a lot of investment going in to keep people in jobs by the, by the central authorities. But on the other hand, capitalism is, is taking those jobs away because you're finding that there's cheaper, more, more um, efficient ways of having uh, these tasks carried out, and that's by robots. I think I, I read something, might, might have been in my own august organ, the FT, um, <laughs> about uh, 20% of Foxconn's employees um, being replaced by robots or robotization, if that's such a word, um, by the end of 2017. So that that's another... That's big. Uh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. another um, factor that I think the Chinese government is particularly... Are concerned with now, of course, one of the interesting things about China is that they have even partly because they've they've got terrible air, they've polluted themselves more than they've polluted the rest of the world. Um, that they are seriously uh, interested in investing in the environment and trying to improve it in China. And I think by doing that in China, that will have an, obviously have a knock-on effect around the rest of the world because we're all linked environmentally. Um, I believe that. That is something that is very concerning for them regarding Trump and the kind of people that he has put into his administration that is going to be in charge of um, environmental... The the sanctity of the environment Mm. in the US. So that's a big worry and um, that's something that I've heard people talk about in China just over the last month. Interesting, because mm. I, it does appear that this is an opportunity for China to take the lead yes. in something that worries everybody in the world. Absolutely. So amazing, whether we call it an opportunity or a challenge, it's mm. a big deal. Mm. So when you talk about the, the impact of all of this, what I know about the factory workers. Yep. What about these millennials that are being oh, right. pumped mm. out of all the colleges mm. in China mm. and to maybe not so many jobs? What's the deal there? Yeah, well, that is interesting because um, I, I think the Chinese generally, it doesn't matter where they are, are a fantastic bunch of innovators and entrepreneurs. So it seems to me, from my experience, from the business that we run in China, that um, if they don't get a job with their degree, they go on and get another one (laughs) um, or get more skills to make them even more employable in this great competitive marketplace. Um, or they to figure out that they're going to start something themselves. Uh, one of the newest um, parts of our FT Chinese uh, website is an innovation platform that we've got set up there. And that is, is quite new, but getting incredible traction because people are interested in, if, if they can't depend on the state to help them get rich, and I think those days have passed, then you've got to depend on yourself. So um, I'm finding this amazing number of... Um, people wanting to engage with each other about getting businesses off the ground, getting business ideas off the ground. I can just, we had eight interns in 2016 over the summer in our Beijing office. Every single one of them frightened the bejesus out of me because they were wonderfully educated, um, sophisticated in their worldview, they'd travelled, they were making up ideas while they were working for the FT. They were impressive. One of them is now moved to the US. She's just finishing a degree in the US and we're going to give her an internship in New York for a year as well to see how that goes. So there, there are, there are very, very, very impressive young people. But I do think you're right with when does, when does their, 
enthusiasm dissolve or dissipate into disappointment if they can't fulfill the very, very um, ambitious goals that they've set themselves. Well, one of the things you're saying that I'm finding really fascinating is around this whole idea of innovation mm. and entrepreneurship yeah. because there is a view, I think, a strong one in the Western world that were the innovators, they're still thinking of China merely as, what did you call it, the uh, the engine? Factory the, of the, the world. The factory of yeah. the world. Um, and that because of the rote learning in their educational system that they don't really have the basics for what it takes to create innovation. But the fact is, you're not the first one who's told me, it's, it's amazing what is happening there, especially mm. among the young. Mm. So I think that's going to be a surprise mm. to the rest of the world that are not really aware of this right now. So when I ask people where will innovation come from, we used to say, well, the expats or the people that mm. go away, get educated and come back and practice it here, but it now sounds like they're homegrown. Mm. That whatever is happening in their schooling, they're still, they're coming back and getting ideas of their own, as you said, and maybe even doing it collaboratively with other young people. Mm. That's new, right? That's, yeah, that is, that is relatively new, I think. Uh, people, there was that view that um, they didn't have, uh, yeah, didn't, know how to, didn't know how to color outside the lines because they were kept strictly within they're Chinese characters, literally mm -hmm. and and, uh, and metaphysically. So I think that uh, that has changed. And, and, and I'm going to lots of different conferences now um, where people are bemoaning the fact that STEM subjects are not being taught sufficiently well in the West. Elsewhere. And yeah. Right. And certainly not being taught to women, to girls, so that you're finding that women are not coming into these to, into technology, into engineering, into these subjects that that are preparing people for careers that are looking at the future and technology and innovation on, on that side of the on that side of the coin. Whereas you're finding in in the in China and Singapore, Hong Kong, etc., STEM subjects are very very important for everybody. So perhaps it's a little bit of that catching up as well. You've got these kids that are really good at math, science. Um, biology, chemistry, physics. They, they're good. And they, you know that from when your kids go from a, the system here to um, a, a, a traditional Western system, as my own kids did when they went, left Hong Kong and went to high school, um, they were head and shoulders ahead above everybody else that they were competing against or, or, or going to school with. Probably to other people's surprise. Uh, to, to their own surprise. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. So it sounds like, in the end, you're highly optimistic about China's future. Uh, I am. Uh, I am optimistic that. Yeah, I'm, I am optimistic. I just, um, having seen it, watched it at closed hands for such a long time. Yeah, I've, I've seen them come in and out of lots of different uh, conundrums. The one conundrum that could trip them up is the whole issue around uh, control and corruption. And I know Xi Jinping has been doing a lot of work to um, set examples around corruption, that it will not be tolerated, uh, that it is being routed out. But there is a whole patronage system in China that is going to be almost impossible, I think, in this or even another generation to totally remove. And it's entrenched. Yes, it's highly entrenched. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the more people 
despite the great internet, you know, the great wall of China that is there running across the country and seen from space, but also blocking um, freedom of communication and access, uh, I think that is something that um, they need to accommodate in a different way. It's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because it sounds like young people especially are finding their voice. Yep. If you become entrepreneurial, already you're, you're asking questions mm. that you didn't ask before. Mm. So are you seeing that? Are, the, are, are people in China more likely to speak up now? Certainly they've spoken up about pollution. Yep. Um, do they sort of pick their subjects? Because in the West, people are, people are convinced that everybody gets punished for speaking up at all in China, which is clearly not the case. So what, where does that all fit? Uh, I think that uh, China's opposition to free speech has become, is, is still entrenched, just as entrenched as lots of other things. Um, it's all about control. And Xi Jinping, uh, the way he's running his administration, is about control plus. So I believe that um, people are a bit more sophisticated about how they're communicating. People have VPNs. So Explain that. A so. VPN is um, a dongle that you can then, or you, a site you can um, uh, log into for a fee that gives you access to ex um, websites that are banned in China. And when I say websites banned in China, I'm not talking about hard porn. I'm talking about yeah, stuff like Google or Facebook or whatever. Um, of course, China's got fantastic um, uh, and highly successful alternatives to Facebook. Um, they've got WeChat, Weibo. They've got all sorts of things that have come up to be great mass communication tools within the country. But people want more. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, that's a real touch point. Uh, they haven't got that worked out. It's, it is more sophisticated because, for example, with... with with our own content in Chinese, we find that um, instead of a comprehensive block of our site, we'll have individual stories blocked. So, gosh, when you think about how many people that involves that have to be involved in that censorship activity, well, well, I don't know. thousands, of or people. is it just thousands of algorithms, or, or just one algorithm? Yeah, I don't by, know. By searching on a word, you mean? I, but, yeah. I, but I've heard that they really do have literally thousands. I'm sure of they do, and I think there are different arms um, of the government uh, playing different roles mm -hmm. on that. So I think probably there are some arms like the SCIO, the State Council Information Office, that would be much more sophisticated than say the local police, who also keep an eye on what goes on um, on the internet. But uh, for it's, it is a, it is a tightrope we walk, particularly in the media industry, every day, frankly. But I think that that is an Achilles heel that could bite them if they're not careful. Isn't it interesting, the irony here about the ambition, the drive, the excitement about young people mm. in China, especially, but all over Asia, really, and the West where we feel... There's a lot of self-satisfaction, mm. a lot of do we really have to do this. Um, mm. I, 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 this is going to be interesting to watch. Yeah. So what else? I haven't asked you, I'm sure, some questions that might be some things that you think about in terms of the shift that's occurred or the, the, the future that we have to look forward to in terms of how we communicate between these two parts of the world. Mm. Anything I haven't asked you about? Well, there is the whole issue of people feeling less secure in their home country where they live or when they travel. Um, the prevalence of um, solo terrorists, Terrorism. Mm -hmm. um, 
versus much more organized terrorism. So suddenly you can be in a market in Germany and, and you can be mowed down by a truck or whereas before you might be worried if you were um, going into a hotspot, if you were traveling via Afghanistan or whatever. So there is a, um, there is a people's psyches, are, I think, have been um, sharpened as a result of that and their, their antennae um, are, are on much more, well, 24-7 probably. I think that, that there is a sense that China's attitude to international relations and is such that um, it's your business. You, your business is your business. My business is my business. I don't expect you to interfere in my business. But occasionally I will interfere in your business, um, has been uh, foreign policy. But I, I, I don't see external terrorism coming to China uh, anytime soon. They have their own issues within the country with the Muslim population and the Uyghurs. Uh, in the far northwest, but I don't see other influences coming into China and taking hold, partly because of the vigilance they have about who comes in and out of the country, uh, but also um, because I think that they wield a big stick and they give the impression they'd be happy to bang you on the head with it. They don't. They don't look vulnerable. No, they don't. The only the only thing that I feel the only part I feel where I feel they are weak and appear weak. With they're not weak, they appear it um, in this region is their relations with North Korea. Mm, uh, yes, that's a that that border is sli- is slightly porous. And also, also, you can't. I, I defy anyone to say they know exactly what's going on in North Korea. And uh, maybe China knows exactly what's going on because the the dear leader goes there on a train and has his teeth done. I have no idea. But um, <laughs> uh, that that is a, a worry, I think, for for Korea, for for Japan, for lots of places, because now we know that they have missiles that can uh, reach as far as those countries. So I think that China has its own problems, domestic problems. But I, I, for some reason, and as I say, I could be totally wrong. I don't feel I don't feel that external, you know, international terrorism is likely to be imported to China anytime soon. And I, I include Hong Kong with that. I think. So what a what a couple of interesting decades for you to have. Mm live through all of this. And mm. it looks like, I think, something you said in the very beginning, this, this could be the beginning of a new age, mm. truly. Um, we used to see covers on magazines, probably also on your, in your newspaper, in your media, about this being the century of China. Mm. But I'm beginning to think people are really convinced that that may be it, certainly of Asia. Yeah. So we'll see we'll what see. happens. Yeah. We'll certainly see. The, yeah, go ahead. Oh, the, the one, uh, one negative thing, just about Hong Kong, my home, um, the one... There's been lots of positive things that have happened here over the last 21 years, although I think we're in a bit of a muddle politically at the moment. It appears so. Uh, I'm just, I'm fascinated to see how it plays out, although slightly bemused about how we got here <laughs> uh, in the first place. But um, there is, I, I do worry about this uh, sense of them and us between the mainlanders and the local Hong Kong Chinese. Uh, because I think that the, there's no, there's no escaping the symbiosis of the countries. And I think that, that I think China has become a little bit more attuned to that. You don't see quite so many, um, 
tourist groups coming through um, that were, who were people who were really quite disgustingly and disgracefully referred to as cockroaches. Um, by the From local. mainland China. Yes, yes. Kong, yes. And that's, a, that's pretty awful because the Chinese diaspora is everywhere and you would like to think that there would be a similar kind of accommodation here about their own countrymen who, who emigrate or, or, or travel to, to this very, very successful um, island and territory. So that is a, a flashpoint that, I'm, that seems to have subsided a little bit, but I don't think it'll take much to light that fire again. In the Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kongers really do have a prejudice against mainland Chinese, don't they? They, they do. They do. I think the people who don't have much contact tend to have quite a lot of negative contact. In my own office building, um, there's 78 floors, 79 floors, and I, increasingly there are eight shares companies setting up their headquarters here. So I'm seeing a lot more of your educated, travelling abroad type um, mainland Chinese person, and I, I can say, I can hand on heart say they're just as rude or just as kind as most Australians or <laughs> anyone else that you meet. You get the good ones and the bad ones. Um, but I think it's that uh, you, you need to have that variety of society to be able to make um, a, 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 an educated or just a, a, a make a decision about how you're going to behave based on a broader experience of those people rather than a bunch of characters that are whooshed through on a 48-hour shopping and, see, and sightseeing trip that begins at Ocean Park and ends at um, some vile shopping centre in Kowloon. Well, you know, in a way that's true of what we're doing with these conversations, really, isn't it? That you, It's really because we don't know the, the ignorance that we all have of places that we haven't had a chance to mm, live in, Yeah. that uh, we think we know the conversation, but we really don't. No. In fact, we don't know what we're talking about unless we've unless we've been there and experienced it, and that's that's yeah. never been more true. Than yeah, and Google makes into you know experts of us all, right? We think we know we because we, we know. can we can dial it up, but uh, you know you nothing nothing really takes the place of face to face experience, conversations, observations. Well, that's a great place to end this. Thank you so much, Angela. This has been terrific to get your insights. Mm. Thanks Thank for you, taking Susan. part. Thank you, Susan. Thank you. time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast, that's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast, and my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.